0: All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you'd open your Bibles, for those of you who are new, uh, this is not a second service. This is a second period. Second period always gets a better education than first period. So welcome. I don't know where everyone is this morning, but you're here and God's going to be glorified. We're going to be in two spots mainly. Um, the book of Genesis, which is very difficult to find. It's the first book in the Bible. And it will also be in Luke chapter 12. So, uh, If you'd kind of put your finger in one of those and then turn to um, uh, one of them. We are uh, just finished the book of Judges. Typically, we go through books of the Bible straight through, and uh, if you missed that one, it was disturbingly wonderful. Uh, We have all the study guides, and you can download the sermons if you'd like to to experience that. Um, During Christmas, we typically take a small uh, topical series, and we are uh, doing that here for the Advent season, so it's four weeks. Uh, And then in January, we will launch into 1 Corinthians and go straight through that, which we'll spend um, a lot of the, uh, if not all, the winter and spring and and barely into summer there in that. So the next four weeks, though, we're in the Advent kind of season, and that typically, traditionally, is four weeks. And it begins uh, today, as Chris talked about, and we have uh, hope and peace and love and joy and so we will have those kind of emphasized this week. We also have a series that goes along with it, and we're calling the series Give. <clears throat> and interestingly enough, the, um, the season that we're in is typically called the season of giving, but if uh, our Thursdays, or yeah, it started Thursday this year, the uh, Black Thursday and the Cyber Monday and all these other days are any indication, it seems like a better description for our season is the season of spending. And if you've ever looked at any of the statistics, the amount of money that's spent not just on presents, but even things as decorations, it's pretty mind-boggling. Um, but what I think is one of the most tragic ironies of all, maybe just a curiosity to you, but for me it's tragic that many people, including Christians, will spend more, infinitely more money this holiday season than they gave all year to the Savior that it celebrates. That should be odd to us, and backwards, and maybe just flat out wrong. Um, In our six years as a church, so we've only been a church for six years, not that long, we have had one sermon on money. And this is not a sermon about money. Though if a sermon on money makes you uncomfortable, you should ask yourself why. And I know that if there are negative feelings coming up or irritations about money and sermons on money and churches talking about money and pastors talking about money, I know that you can blame that on a history in the church full of abuses of money. I recognize and admit that's wrong and and that exists. And there's also been maybe some of your own personal experiences with churches and bad theology relative to money and prosperity, gospels and things of that nature. But if that's not the case, or maybe it even is the case still, perhaps there's something deeper at work that causes you to be irritated by people talking about money in church. Um, This is not a series that's titled Tithe. It's not titled Double Honor. It's not titled Indulgence. And that's because this is not a series designed to make up some budget deficit at the end of the year. Don't have one. And it's not a series designed to help us launch a building campaign. Not going to do that. It's not what it's about. But it is a series, and I think a very timely one, considering the time period that we're in, to help disciples of Jesus, not just believers in Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that even demons believe in Jesus. Disciples of Jesus, those who put their faith in Jesus, to help disciples of Jesus consider, I mean, really think about how, what, and especially why you give in response to the God who gave. And I think that why is really important because there's a lot of us that don't struggle with giving, but our hearts are still not right with God in that giving. But it makes us feel good to give. But Jesus, uh, you may be familiar with if you read books on giving, not that that's really on the top of your list or heard sermons or whatever, you'll know or have been told that Jesus talked a lot about giving, specifically um, about money and possessions. In fact, depending on who you look at or or what you read, numbers can range from 15, and I've seen some guys say upwards of 50% of all that Jesus spoke spoke about concerned money or possessions and how we use them or not. And people people disagree about whether this is 800 verses or if this is well over 2,000 verses in the New Testament. So depending on whose calculation you accept and the formulas that people use, that can amount to almost a third of Jesus' teaching or one verse about money and possessions every seven verses in the first three Gospels. Now without question, and even regardless of what way you calculate it it's clear that our lord jesus knew that there was a fundamental connection between one's spiritual life and one's attitude toward giving not one's amount of their giving we're talking about heart attitudes this is not pragmatics this is not practical this is not what's your 10% this is what's your heart behind what you give or not and these are not very popular sermons to preach It's amazing that people after church were like, uh, good job, you know? (laughs) And seeing as, if you think about this, and it very specifically says it about how the Pharisees felt about what Jesus was saying with money and possessions, because it says they loved their riches. Seeing that Jesus was crucified for what he taught, it shouldn't surprise anyone, pastors, Or disciples, and why I say disciples, with the courage enough to speak into the life of those who are in their lives, and their friends, and their family, about money? Seeing as Jesus was crucified for what he taught, shouldn't be surprised that you'll be hated for repeating what Jesus taught. And that's all that's going on here. So take it up with him. Because the funny thing is, we'll welcome others to speak into our lives, to inquire about spiritual things, to even admonish us, Don't talk about my money or my stuff. You leave that alone. Now, my hope is that our series will address that problem, that attitude. Namely, very specific parts of that attitude that we will all come to the biblical conviction that first and foremost, all of your stuff is God's. Easy to say, difficult to actually live. And that all of your life is spiritual. It's not broken into categories of materialism and spiritual stuff over here and relational stuff over here. It's all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that all of your behavior, yes, all of it, even spending your money, is directly connected with good or bad theology. It all goes back to theology. In other words yours and my understanding as evidenced by our attitude or actions, specifically related to giving, reveal our understanding of who God is and what He's done for us. That's actually what's at work here. So, in the month of giving or spending, however you want to call it, we're going to talk about give and really hopefully develop a theology of giving. So I'm going to pray that God will move me out of the way and speak and that you will not allow the veil of your own heart to drop nor the legal defense spiritual team go into your mind and try to excuse yourself from listening to anything that God has to say. Okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your patience and your grace to us. And I actually, mostly this morning, thank you for your generosity. Would you show us how generous you are? Would you convict those who need conviction, Holy Spirit, and comfort those who need comfort? Would you take our minds deeper into the heart issues and not let us remain into the world of pragmatics and measuring and evaluating how we give as opposed to measuring the heart behind the giving? It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. All right, well, as I said, good giving begins with good theology. you hear that a lot. So we're going to go back in order to understand theology, just so you know, theology is the study of God. Specifically, the study of who God has revealed Himself to be in His Word. And so, in order to understand who God is and how He has already given incredibly generously to us, we're going to start in the beginning, which is the book of Genesis, in verse 28, specifically. So, chapter 1 is the record of the seven days of creation. Beginning in verse 28, we've already gone through five days. Man and women have been created. And it says in verse 28, a very simple four-word sentence that's beautiful and powerful and says everything that we need to say, which is, and God blessed them. God blessed them, them being mankind. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, and ye shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God sought everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was an evening, and there was a morning, the sixth day. What does this teach us? That God was the first giver. In fact, maybe you haven't thought about this. He created everything out of nothing. And therefore, He created everything that there is to give. And the world God created is full of good stuff. How do I know that? God said so. Who defines what good is? God. Anything God does is good. And He Verbally said, it is good, it is to be enjoyed, it was wonderful, it was beautiful, and God has been all-knowing, I think, a pretty good perspective on it. And He created all these good things to primarily, not solely, but primarily do one thing. The Bible says that creation was brought into existence to display the greatness of God. And if you've ever watched those discovery shows or just looked about creation yourself, you will be. You can't help but be amazed. Very few people will look at an incredible sunset and go, yeah, that's okay. Right? We are amazed at the beauty that God has created. His creativity. His wisdom. Some of those discovery things where they're going like down below the sea or underground, you're like, that is the most disgusting, amazing thing I've ever seen. Right? And it was display something about Him and His greatness. There's a reason why God uses animal metaphors to describe who he is constantly in Scripture. And then he gave all of that to man and to woman, to Adam and to Eve, to do two things. To both manage, take care of, cultivate, and to enjoy. Both of those. It's funny how men seem to fall on one side of those to an indulgence but it was given to men and women to enjoy and to manage. And the Bible says in the book of James that every good gift, which in Greek means every, every good gift, right? All of them come down from God. God the Father. But God gave more than mountains and plants. He gave more than water and land and trees and fruit and all these things and animals to, to enjoy. He Gave us more than breath. Think about this. He actually gave us the tools to build life. You see, many believe that the success they have comes solely from the hard work that they perform or the wise decisions that they make. That because they have done well and been successful, that is just evidence of their diligence and wise decision-making. And if you have not done well or not succeeded, that's because you are dumb and suck, pretty much. Okay? But the Bible tells us that you're delusional to believe, delusional to believe that anything we have is ours or that it actually came through your own efforts. Really? Really. You ever got a guy named Moses? 80-year-old guy. God shows up in a flaming shrubbery, says, I want you to go back to Egypt, I want you to talk to the most powerful man in the world at the time and tell him to let my people go. What does Moses say? He doesn't say, well, that's a bad idea. He doesn't say, no way, he'll never let them go. What he says is, I can't really speak that well. And God responds by telling him this in Exodus 4. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, said the Lord? Think about this if you believe that your success comes from your education. Who gave you your mind? Who gave you your ability to learn? Who gave you your capacity to grow? Who gave you your desires even to understand? If you think your success comes from your strength or or skill, who gave you the muscles that you have the fingers, the toes, your abilities to walk and to lift? Did it come from your creativity or your artistry? Well, who gave you your eye for art? Who gave you the mind to imagine the things you imagine? Who gave you your ability to dance or to play music or or sing? Or some of us just say, well, I just got lucky. came from heredity or fate. You know, God gave you the family you have, the personality you have even ordain the experiences you've had <clears throat> all is from God God is the creator God is the first giver God gives constantly and he intended for his children that he made in his image to give like him as they depended on him like a child depends on a father and he designed the world not so that men would hoard what they have or that they would depend on the stuff that that God had given them or they could obtain through the gifts God had given them. But something happened that led to just that. It's called the fall of man. And the temptation was not simply an offer of a new material provider, but it was our parents declaring their independence from God By choosing to believe the false promises of sin, which said simply, you'll be happier and stronger and better with this. It was more than just a different provider. It was an attack on where men and women were going to find their identity, their security, and their joy. And this is not just a struggle of the world, right? Don't let that that veil fall over your heart. That's right, the world is really messed up aren't they? This is a struggle we all have. Let's read and consider the details of Genesis chapter 3 and the temptation. Listen to it a little bit differently maybe. You rock, Vicki. She's to be choking up here. and wants to get water. Mainly because she probably doesn't want to be spit on as I start choking. <clears throat> it says this in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, the lord god had made and he said to the woman did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent no we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden we can have them all god let us eat everything but god said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die <clears throat> but the serpent said to the woman you're not surely die For God knows, he's lying to you, right? That when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, standing silently, not standing up to defend his wife and to admonish the snake like he should have and instead bring sin into the world and screw it up for all of us. And he ate. My my Bible has that parenthetical, what about you? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, the fall of man began, first of all, with lies, or at least casting doubt on God who was holding out on them, and then believing false promises about the stuff God had made. Look at this thing you don't have. Satan said, take it. It will make you happier. This should sound familiar to some of us. Most of us. Because people are still falling for that same lie. And it's not just during the season of spending. Right, The serpent who is called the father of lies by Jesus... He convinced our first parents, catch this, that what they had, everything except the one tree, he convinced our first parents that everything they had was not enough, that they needed more. And the words of the temptation reveal that it's much deeper than just provision, right? What does she say? She saw it was good. God had said it was bad saw it was good, it was a delight to the eyes, and it would make one wise, make them better. In the Garden of Eden, God's stuff, after the fall, took on an entirely new power, and it became a governing force of identity, and still is today. And think about this, the relationship with God, and our relationship with God, and men's relationship with God, became defined by what He hasn't given me. I mean, what's your typical prayers to God? Prayers for what you don't have or thankfulness for what you have? Ouch. Yeah, welcome to my week. Our relationship with God became defined by what He has not given me. And our relationship with others and even ourselves became defined by what we have or what they don't have. So today, very much... I know it's cliche, but you are what you buy because we're not just purchasing superior products. We are purchasing superior identities, identities that proclaim, I've got it together, I'm successful, I'm better, I'm cultural, I'm athletic, I'm high-tech, blah, 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 goes on and on. And it's not to say that any of those things, being high-tech, being cultural, whatever, are bad. It's to say when they become the core of your identity, you've got a problem. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. It, it shows you the depth of this, and I'm going to show you a word in this section of Scripture that I probably read this Scripture 100, maybe 1,000 times, and I missed it. <clears throat> maybe that shows my own idolatry. Romans 1, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 1 tells us that the problem is very deep, and Romans 1 is a, basically the second half of the chapter is an explanation of what happened as men were given over to their sin by God. It says in verse 21, For although they, so that be mankind, speaking about the fall of man, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Catch that? Or give thanks to Him. So put that on the shelf. But what happened? They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools then they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All the things God made. Therefore God gave them in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who was blessed forever. It's very simple what happened. Men ceased worshipping God and worshipped His stuff. This is why we don't give. Because to give away our stuff is to give away our identity. It's to give away the things that make us who we are. And it says very clearly, one of the first things, right after they did not honor Him as God, or what? Give thanks. Well, that seems odd. They refuse to give thanks to God. Why? Because they don't recognize God any longer as the owner of all things. Why would you thank Him? I got this stuff for myself. This is my stuff. Why would I be thanking God? And so we see the heart of it is a failure to recognize that God does own all things. And they refuse then to honor God with the stuff that they've been given to manage, to display His greatness, and to bless others. That's why it was given. And they hoard it, and they use it to honor themselves. Now, again, I know a lot of us are like, yeah, I I know people like that. Be careful. Be careful. Because a lot of us think that we're incredibly generous until we end up seeing how generous God actually is. And if we don't leave here thinking that we are not generous and God is incredibly generous, then... Somehow we failed to read the scriptures right. The sad thing is, few of us will ever admit that we're greedy or materialistic. We always know someone who's a little wealthier than us, a little more greedy than us. A seasoned pastor, Tim Keller, who is one of the few pastors I listen to because he's old and he's a lot better preacher than me, so I figured I have nothing to covet. because I will never achieve that, and he's really old and I can't catch up to him. So... He's a really awesome guy. What he said was, and when he's been a pastor for many more years than me, and when you become a pastor, uh, what one thing I found is that a lot of people end up just confessing their sin to you. Like you sit down with them, how are you doing? And they puke it out, and you're like, okay, wow, we're going deep quick, and that's fine. It just kind of comes with with the idea of you know there's safety in that, and there's um, I think that's a good thing. But what he said was that among all the people who have ever come to him, which is you know thousands probably of people over the years that have come to him. To confess sin, no one has ever come to him and confessed that they were too materialistic. He's never had someone come in and go, you know, I just feel like I'm a little greedy. I just, I just, uh, I'm not generous enough. (laughs) Not New York, it's right. Greed and materialism is very deceptive. And it doesn't matter how much money you make. That's not the point to think, well, if I made a little bit more, I could give. No, I'm not ta- I'm talking about the heart of generosity, regardless of what you have. Remember, the widow's might, If you don't, look it up. Matthew 19 is a very interesting passage. Jesus' words are hard, man. A man comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, uh, hey, what good deed do I have to do in order to get into heaven? And Jesus tells him, well, if you want to enter into eternal life, you need to uh, keep the commandments. Basically, do what God says. So the man responds, it's like, Well, I've obeyed the commandments. So Jesus says, Oh, really? Which ones? So he mentions all the commandments murder, I've done that, adultery, stealing, lying, didn't any of those. I've obeyed my mom and dad, mentions that. Good job, liar. Even loving thy neighbors. But he strangely, conveniently, Perhaps unknowingly leaves one out. Coveting. What's coveting? The desire for more stuff. He was greedy and he didn't even know it. I mean, you kind of know when you commit adultery. You kind of know when you lie, when you steal. When do you covet? When are you greedy? It's hard to tell. That's why it's so dangerous. And that's why I think Jesus warns us a lot about possessions and money. If you turn to Luke chapter 12, this is where I want to spend the rest of the time. And Jesus um, is teaching, and a man calls out to him about an inheritance that his family or his brother seems to have received. In Luke chapter 12, verse 13, here's what he says Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge and arbiter over you? And then he says to them, right? So now he's speaking to everybody. So like he looks at him, who made me a judge over that situation? And then he says this to everybody else Take care, be on your guard. Against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He's like, watch out. Watch out for covetousness. Guard against it. It can get you. And then he proceeds to tell a parable to connect this idea of our attitude towards possessions and and our souls. What does he say? Verse 6, he told them a parable. So this is where he doesn't even answer the guy's question. He starts talking told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he, the man, thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I have so much stuff. What am I going to do with it all? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my friends, no, I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Are you, am I, rich toward God? What does that mean? It seems pretty obvious. It gets more so. But this guy shows us a pretty interesting picture, this parable this guy tells us, that men fear giving. And I say men, I mean we, people, fear giving because, quite frankly, they fear losing success or security. It's actually quite simple, and you see it in this guy's life. Notice... The man does a couple things. First of all, he speaks to himself. What I mean is, he didn't make some financial decisions within community. And it doesn't mean you make every major financial decision within community, but he's not even thinking about community. Not how to make decision or that maybe I'll just bless the community with my extra. The last financial decision you made in your life, the last major one, who did you involve in that? Anyone? Do you have those people that you trust that will actually willingly say, you shouldn't buy that? You shouldn't spend that? Most people talk to themselves because they dare not bring that up. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. And they perhaps already know the answer. But the other thing that I think is maybe more noteworthy is that he speaks not only to himself, but his soul. Right? His decisions about money are, are never made in community, but His decisions are not just practical either. They're spiritual. Jesus connects spirituality with our giving. Not to say, if I give more, that proves I'm more faithful. I'm just talking the heart attitude behind it. Because you can give a ton unfaithfully. And God will still use it, quite frankly. We saw that in the book of Judges. But men fear giving because they feel like they're going to lose their success or their security. We don't often look at giving in a spiritual way. But I do believe that when we don't give, we're believing the same false promise of the garden. One is that more stuff will make me wise, will make me better, will make me happier. In his letter to a young pastor, there's a very powerful verse that if you are rich, and I'll say rich in this way, you're all rich. We don't really think we are. We live in a very opulent and the richest culture in the world. And we don't think we're rich because we always can think of someone else who is wealthier than us. But compared to the world, historically and present day, we are wealthy. And Professor Dr. David Platt, great writer, great man, he's the guy that led the secret church. Um, he was doing a, a little debate of sorts about giving at one point, And he was sharing with his, uh, this group of um, pastors, most of which are megachurches. And he talked about how they had come to their budget as a church and began to ask, what could we go without so that we can give more money to preach the gospel across the world? And one of the things they cut back was um, crackers for children. And it wasn't that they were trying to not give crackers, they wanted the children to understand the idea of sacrifice, the idea of like, we are making decisions to give. So the pastors challenged him on that, said, you just have a... A gospel of poverty, theology of poverty. And these kids are learning that you know, they can't enjoy you know, wealth or they can't enjoy what they have and all these things. And that certainly was not the agenda at all. An example he used, he said, you have a bunch of guys that are listening to you, David Platt, and they're sitting in their apartments holding on to the theology of poverty, playing their Xboxes and not doing anything for anybody. And David Platt kind responds like, but they're rich. See, we don't even see guys sitting in a nice warm apartment who have food and Xbox as wealthy. We're very wealthy. Paul had some warnings for the rich, and he said this in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, Timothy, young pastor, charge them not to be haughty or prideful. See, having stuff makes us feel good, even if we won't admit it. It makes us look good. It makes us think that we're somebody to have certain things, brand names, cool clothes, a certain kind of car, a certain kind of lifestyle. And whether we want to admit it, status symbols are huge in our lives, even if they're subtle and small. It doesn't have to be an expensive one. And just like Adam and Eve, we believe that our stuff will make us something, that the different pieces of creation will give us significance apart from our Creator. And it plays itself out differently in each of our lives, but it plays itself out assuredly. And those who refuse to give also believe the lie that stuff is good for food. Right? So it's going to make me better or that it's good for food. Well, we all need food to survive, don't we? It's that security piece. If I don't have this, I'll die. If I give, how will I survive? See, having stuff isn't about success. It's about security often and Paul knew that well in the same verse in First Timothy 6.17 says don't be haughty and tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The truth is we place our hope and our certainty of what is to come by anxiously investing in the goods of this world so that we'll be secure. And in the process we end up leaving the refuge of our creator and the provision, the dependence upon him, and even the gratitude of which seeing all the things as his, we begin to idolize and serve and devote ourselves to getting possessions. And if you don't think this is the case, think about this. Um, Chris will speak about this when he talks about next week about God giving intentionally and God planning and all these things. Just think about, though, how much time you plan for giving. I'm not talking to the church. Giving your service, giving your time, giving to the poor, giving whatever. How much time you dedicate to that, you've actually carved out to say, I'm going to think about this, put time into this, as opposed to how much you planned your last vacation. And the time and energy and money you dedicated to that. It seems pretty obvious what we end up devoting ourselves to. In our current economy, or at least the last year or two, revealed very quickly a lot of people's idolatry. Where suddenly, their identity was so wrapped up in their job, and when it's gone, their world comes crashing down. And I'm not, for a minute, going to dismiss the devastation that brings into a family. But it is 100% more devastating when your identity is wrapped up in it. And the sad thing is, the economy is slowly coming back and a lot of those people are not learning their lessons before they get a job again. And so they're returning to the same process and the same cycle and dedicating their lives to the same pursuits. Well, Jesus gives some very specific commands in the rest of that text to his disciples. And I say his disciples because, um, as I said when I started, not all those, all those who believe in Jesus are disciples. Disciples follow Disciples learn, disciples grow, disciples change. You can't help but change when you're following Jesus. Even the demons believe in Jesus. They don't follow Him. So verse 22 says, he says to his disciples, "Listen to these words, let him speak them to you. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor they reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Uh, how much more value are you than the birds? exclamation point. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies and how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Right? Jesus hits the problem. Hits all of us in the heart for why we don't give. We don't give because we seek our kingdom instead of God's. And we seek our own kingdom instead of God's because we do not trust that God will in fact provide our needs. Jesus says the heart of our failure is not even poor planning. It's lack of faith. Lack of faith in God. We make decisions about what to do with our money based on conservative or sometimes liberal earthly standards, but not on the wisdom that God has given us that might actually be quite irrational at times. And the scary thing is, as we make decisions to build or increase our kingdom, many of us begin to justify our faithlessness by using big Christian-sounding words like stewardship. Stewardship. That's the worst. I'm being a good steward. I'm taking care of my family. What about teaching your family about sacrificial and generous giving? The truth is, we refuse to give as generously as we do because doing so will disrupt the lifestyle that we're protecting. And it's not always an opulent lifestyle. But at the heart of this, as I started, is bad theology. Because in your failure to give, you're not just denying God is generous. You're denying much more. You're denying that God is good and gives you good things. You're denying that God is sovereign and owns all things. You're denying that God is all-powerful and is able to give you all things, or that He's all-knowing and He knows what you need, or that He's simply loving and will give it. Do you realize how much theology you have to deny to not be generous? It's about God. Our giving is supposed to be governed by good theology, who God is, believing and trusting and following. Who the Bible says God is. So how do you seek his kingdom? Right? He says at the end, like instead seek the kingdom. We talk, seek the kingdom, just seek the kingdom. How do you do that? That seems so spiritual, so like ethereal, and I don't understand. Well, let me make it a little more tangible for you. Here's how you seek the kingdom. All right, the answer to the million-dollar question. We stop living as if the kingdom of God is arriving and you start living as citizens of the kingdom right now. We do the very thing that the kingdoms of this world would say is unwise, irrational, and foolish. We do what Jesus says, which was to give fearlessly and radically and generously. That just doesn't make sense. I know. But Jesus said so. Verse 32 says this, fear not. So I tell tell you guys, don't be afraid. Because that's what drives our lack of giving. Fear. Don't be afraid. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the need. I think it means what it says. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. And this is not sell all your possessions. I'm pretty sure that's not the problem we struggle with. When you move someone's house, which I just moved the other day, and not me, I helped someone move. And I was talking to the wife who, they were very organized. they, they it was like the best move ever. Super fast, super organized, great. They didn't have a lot of junk. But I know the next time I move, I'm going to have two big trucks, one big dumpster and one moving car. Because i got piles of stuff I don't need, and so do you. Having possessions is not our problem. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Jesus' command is very clear. And if you're a disciple of Christ, guess what the Great Commission is? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and teaching them to observe all that I command. There's one of Jesus' commands. How are you doing? How am I doing? How are we doing? We're not to do this because we feel guilty or bad for owning stuff. Remember, the world and All that's in it was given for us to manage and enjoy. We're to do it out of love. Not guilt, out of love for the needy. And we love because we understand that we've been loved, and that controls us, and that makes us generous. Well, what's generous? I don't even know what generous is. Your generous isn't my generous. Well, we give like Jesus gave. Uh-oh. This goes to Jesus? Heck, yes, it does. It always does. All right? We give because we understand the gospel. gospel is not just that set of facts you ascend to and believe one time. It's the truth that transforms your life constantly and needs to be preached over and over again. The news that what Jesus has done in history to bring us back to God. And the news tells us that Jesus, right? Colossians 1, the, the creator. The Son of God who created everything, who therefore owns everything, the infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, sovereign God, the richest of the rich, gave us all that He had that we might be blessed. And the Christmas season is a time to celebrate the Son of God taking on human flesh and giving Himself to us, I mean, the the incarnation is the is the declaration of God's undeserved generosity toward us. 2 Corinthians eight nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, the richest there ever could be, yet for the, your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you even realize how poor Jesus became when we talk about generosity? Right? He was not poor because he came as a peasant from Nazareth or because he was a carpenter who he describes himself as homeless at some point. He was poor because he was the infinite God becoming man. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself to the point of death. And in giving grace and mercy and love and forgiveness generously, he reveals the true nature of generous giving. You want to know what generous is? Generous giving is sacrificial giving. We deny ourselves. We ignore the world's view of success. We find security in God, and we give so much that it hurts. That others might be blessed. That's what giving like Jesus was. And you talk about what it said in that last verse, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Consider where God's treasure went and where His heart was. It was with us. He gave, so we give. What is generous? Well, if you're giving, and I mean you're giving to the poor, you're giving to your neighbors, you're giving to the church, if your giving, all that you include in your giving does not cause you to change your lifestyle, then it's not generous. If it doesn't hurt, if it's not a sacrifice, if you don't feel it, if you've insulated itself enough so you don't have to have faith, it's not generous. It's not like Jesus. So to close us out, God's pretty clear. Jesus is pretty clear. He commands us to give. And if you're a Christian, you're charged to be rich in good works and to give your time, service, and resources as an act of worship in response to God's approval and his love not to obtain it. God owns everything. You are a manager of what is his. And I'm pretty sure as you stand before him, in the end, God's not going to say, I wish you would have kept a little more for yourself. All right. He has given you everything you have from the house you live in to the breath that empowered you to work to buy that house. And God wants you to depend on Him. And as you give, consider whether you really trust God's going to provide. And if you're not trusting Him, what are you trusting in that's not going to last? Or who? God gives to us that we might give to others. And the best thing we can do is give people the gospel. That's where it begins. We are called to proclaim the gospel quite simply. We are here to tell people this, that Jesus, although richer than any king that ever lived, loved us so much that he gave it all up. And he came to earth and he lived his perfectly sinless life, and he died on the cross paying a debt that I did not have enough money to pay and never would. And he defeated both sin and death by rising from the dead and is now seated as king of kings and lord of lords and I am a citizen through faith in his kingdom. And when we confess these things he gives us the richness of his righteousness that we might be freed from what is our bankrupted hearts. And it's Those transformed hearts, those hearts that have appealed to God and seen all that He has given us, who truly understand and believe. And honestly, when you understand God's generosity, you understand the generosity of His forgiveness, the generosity of His grace, the generosity of His love, the generosity of His patience, the generosity of all that He blesses us with. You can't help but confess through generosity and blessing of So Jesus said, as I was sent, I'm sending you. We are commanded to give like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to the glory of Jesus. It's for Jesus, by Jesus. So as you come this morning to the communion table, again, I challenge you to to go slow at it. Because what you're doing is coming up and basically unwrapping the biggest present you ever received every Sunday. And it is a bold reminder of the generosity of God. But it's a reminder that it's supposed to be transformational. If you don't leave the table with a desire to give, with a desire to bless, then perhaps you didn't engage with God at the table as you ought. Perhaps you didn't recognize His generosity. Perhaps you honored Him but didn't give Him thanks. Don't make that mistake. See the generosity of God. Confess your stinginess, your lack of generosity, whatever it is, and dwell on all that God has given you. Let's pray.